Pop quiz to start today's sermon. Let's see, especially those who have taken the Old Testament course, if we can get this one right. It's not too difficult, but who is the last prophet of the Old Testament? Who's the last prophet of the Old Testament? Anybody know? Malachi. Malachi. What was that? <laughs> John the Baptist. Hey. That's a trick question. It's a trick question. Right? Because he's in the New Testament. Who's the greatest Old Testament prophet? Hmm. John the Baptist. <laughs> you know, your Sunday school answer is always Jesus, but not this time, right? John, yeah, John the Baptist. Why? Because he is the one who comes before the one, capital O, right? He is the one who comes before the one who will bring salvation. What a place of honor. What a place of honor. What do you say when you are the hype man for Jesus? <laughs> you know, hype man for main act on the main stage. What do, you, what do you say when you're the guy before Jesus? Huh? What message do you bring? What could you possibly add that has already been revealed? Last week we heard Father Brian uh, preach from Luke about those Israelites who stood between the times, right? Who stood between the times of coming salvation and judgment. Um, and we learned that we ourselves stand in a similar place. We stand with salvation having come and judgment. And so I think John's message, John the Baptist's message we hear from Luke today is very relevant to us as it was to them. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to grab mine. Why don't we turn to Luke chapter 3 and we'll hear from John the Baptist about how they and we ourselves can prepare for both Jesus' second coming, but also remember his first. And I think John's message is very clear and simple. God's word prepares all to see salvation by repenting from sin. God's word prepares all to see salvation by repenting from our sins. And so we're going to first look at the context in which the word of God came. Second, we'll dig into the content of his message. And third we're going to relate it to how he does with the passage out of Isaiah. So first, let's look at uh, the context of the message. You can tell John is a prophet by the intro he receives, right? I mean, this is how any author of the Bible would have introduced a prophet. They always located the prophet. You know, if you have a quick thumb and just turn to Isaiah. Uh, we hear this in Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings, of uh, the kings of Judah. They always locate the kings in which they are speaking the word of God through. 
And here we see this with John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And we, we see not really too many mentions of, you know, first off, it starts off with Caesar, which, what is going on here, right off the bat, right? This isn't just some king of Judah or king of Israel. We're starting with Caesar. Hmm, that's a little different. Uh, and then it gets into a governor, Pontius Pilate, okay. And then these tetrarchs, right? Three of them sort of splitting up the area. What's going on here? It's a bit messy, isn't it? It's a bit messy time that John has come to prepare the way for the one. We don't see these lines, these kings from the line of David, or these, these, um, these high priests even from the line of Aaron. It's a messy time with a lot of characters on the stage. Uh, Tiberius Caesar ruling Israel is under the thumb of Rome, a foreign power yet again. Um, before this was the Greeks. Before them, the Babylonians, right? The Persians and then the Babylonians. And so we see this yet again. And we see Rome have set up some puppet kings, these tetrarchs. And these Romans would have been the ones who, and, and were the ones who established who was in the, the office of these sort of client kings. And they also were the ones who installed and deposed the high priests. And so really, Israel is, is ruled by a foreign nation, and even their leadership is controlled and determined by the Romans. So the way the pie was divided up is the Jewish priests and these tetrarchs sort of controlled and handled the civic and religious life, but they were always beholden to Rome. They were always beholden to Rome who bore the sword, and they were good at using it. So it's in this time of sort of client kings, they're called, um, priesthood, priesthoods that were quite corrupt even, uh, with, with foreign overlords, that John's clear and simple message comes through. And boy, had it been a prophetic drought, right? It had been roughly 460 years from some of our answers, the last Old Testament prophet Malachi. Well, the, the pre, not the last, the previous Old Testament prophet Malachi, right? And <laughs> out of this drought, in this messy political, religious, social life, where we find Israel in bondage yet again, we hear, what? Verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God comes, finally. And it comes in the wilderness. Uh, Ambrose of Milan, the Bishop of Milan, early in the church's history, makes a really great point that, that God begins um, forming his church, right? Not with a lot of these power-hungry characters. He doesn't do it through the, 
the priesthood that was established, Caiaphas, or and uh, I always want to say Ananias, um, Ananias, but it's Annas. Uh, no, he he establishes the church not around any one particular person, but around the Word of God. Quoting Ambrose, the church should begin not from man, but from the Word. And so, before the coming of the one who will bring salvation, God sends John to rally the people around the word of God. To rally the people around the word of God. To speak to them yet again. And the word of God cuts through the noise of culture and creates people capable of worshiping their Lord and Savior. The word of God meets us in the wilderness a place where there is no fruit, where it's hard ground, where there, it's arid and dry. If you went and surveyed the wilderness and said, I think I'll buy this and try to make a go at it with a farm. No, you wouldn't do that because it's, there's no fruit, right? It's in this wilderness setting that the word of God comes to bear fruit. Here at Christ the Redeemer, this is a similar thing. The word of God is the axis of our being, really. Um, I loved hearing the story of Christ the Redeemer from Father Brian when he was in Florida. He had said to a group of people, just start praying, right? Just start praying, trying to hear from the Lord about this. And that's sort of been the get-go ever since. We've been a people that have been in prayer and hearing the word, and we do so every single week. This is what Bishop Quigg taught us to do when he came and visited just a couple of weeks ago. Have a time, have a place. Get into the word. It will form us, it will shape us, it will become that which informs us and it will cut through all the cultural noise and lead us to be ready for the one. To get ready for the one. And so what is the message of God's word that he delivers through John the Baptist? How does he prepare us? Well, it's a pretty simple sermon. <laughs> Let's read. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was actually a pretty common image and, and um, was used by uh, the religious communities of this time for uh, especially uh, Jewish communities to sort of cleanse those proselytes into Judaism. Those folks who wanted to become Jews, they actually if they have excavations where they have these stone stairs sort of down into this pool in which they would have, you know, dunked and, and been ceremonially washed clean. Um, John, though, is using the Jordan River. Hmm. A little bit different? Right off the bat, that strikes you. Why the Jordan? What's the significance here? Well, wasn't it the Jordan that served as the last step of the Israelites as they were leaving slavery from Egypt, about to step into the promised land and finally claim those promises which their father Abraham had received from God. 
Wasn't it that final step that their deliverance was at hand? Yes, this is a thing that drew the crowds, that John was proclaiming this baptism for another exile of sorts. And this is, beyond the Jordan, the most astonishing thing, that there is forgiveness of sins. This is what got Jesus in hot water, right, with the religious community. Forgiveness of sins? Who can forgive sins? Only God. Only God. And so we have this this crossing over out of slavery motif. We have this forgiveness of sins language. All very scandalous and all very thought-provoking. And all of this, friends, is leading to this, um, this call to repentance. This call to repentance. But it's, but it's not, you know, coming, all of this is not necessarily, I mean, John is setting this up, but he is, he's not the one who's going to forgive their sins, right? That's the one who is to come. Uh, and, and the call that John is just getting them ready by repentance. And so it's really the forgiveness of sins that draws out this repentance, draws out this behavior. And I think if we understand just the gravity of of what forgiveness of sins is like, I think it will draw us into patterns of repentance ourselves. I was, uh, (laughs) when I was in Massachusetts, I went to a liturgical boot camp, because I'm a nerd, um, and uh, the teacher was Arthur Kluklas, Artie Kluklas, who was a professor of liturgics and uh, sacramental theology at Neshota House, which is an Anglican seminary, who, he's really the main architect who assembled this. And so I'm with the guru, right? I'm with the guy. You know, this guy is the guy. Um, and we have a day-long liturgical boot camp. And so he's teaching us all the things. You go like this, you know, when you're consecrating... The elements, you, you kind of walk like this and, you know, all the things. He's just rolling through every service that we do and he gets to confession. Um, not the corporate confession that we do, but if you were to come to Father Brian to confess your sins and, and he would counsel you in that. And he says, you know, it's such a spiritual gift that God gives pastors to forget. To forget those sins that get confessed to you. (laughs) They're gone. They're done. They're obsolete. They're over. When they're confessed and they've received forgiveness, it's finished. And he has remarkable stories of this divine forgetfulness. Like someone comes to him again and I don't know what you're talking about. Let's talk about it. Because it's over. The sin is gone. It's forgiven. The burden's off. As far as the east is from the west, right? Our sins are cast away. That will preach John the Baptist, right? (laughs) That'll bring out the crowds, and it does, which we'll look at next week. 
But I hope it draws us into wanting to repent. Repentance is a turning to receive this forgiveness, right? Um, you know, Martin, Martin Luther says we're sort of caved in on ourselves, and one of my professors at seminary always sort of pictured that as if we're sort of, we're looking at our navel, we're just sort of staring at ourselves, we're sort of curved in and on ourselves and our sinfulness, and repentance is, is sort of slowly coming up and coming alive, and, and finally being free of these sins, and awaking to all that God would have for you in your life. And it's certainly something that happens in a time, but also continues. Um, I am floored by St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe some say maybe the holiest man since Christ. I mean, this man didn't take a wife. He lived in poverty. He begged for every piece of food he got. He, you know, completely... uh, abhorred riches. Uh, he went on missions trip to Muslim countries <laughs> with his troop. He, angels visited his door. You know, he's, he was wrapped in the spirit numerous times. I mean, this man just was holy. <laughs> I mean, this man was very close and intimate to God in ways I can't imagine, in ways that really only like the apostles, it seems, have been. And he always referred to himself as a worm. As a worm. You know, and, and this, is, this is it. It's, you know, repentance, God is peeling back the layers like of an onion of our pride. He's removing these idols slowly but surely, but, but into, into this greater love that he fills our heart with as he continues to remind us of this forgiveness that we have. It's forgiveness that draws us out and trusts us to come and leave those things behind and turn. And this is the way we prepare. This is really the way that we prepare for our coming king. And so we see it is God's word that comes and calls us to repent for the forgiveness of sins And it gets summed up in this image from Isaiah, right? Verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. That means John, whatever he just said is fulfilling this. And this is a great restatement of what John just did and said. And we see this language of hills being Lowered, valleys being raised, all for this coming salvation. And this raising and lowering certainly relates to this repentance. And this salvation is certainly related then to this forgiveness of sins. And what they did in the ancient times is when a king was coming, when a king was coming into town, they would literally go out and make the roads look good. 
You know, it's like you don't want the king taking that nosedive that you have to every morning. So it's like, well, let's put some dirt here and let's sort of straighten these things out because the king's coming. The king is on its way. We want to make sure these roads look good. I mean, you guys, if you're throwing a Christmas party, you want to make your house look good. Same sort of thing. The king is coming. So let's prepare the road. And so stepping back a little bit, what is the picture that Luke leaves us with? (laughs) Caesar, Pontius Pilate, three tetrarchs, high priesthood, all of these rulers, all of this divided, tangled mess. But a king's coming. A king is coming. In the midst of all that, here comes this king. And it's going to be the confrontation of this king with those people that will lead to our forgiveness, does it not? Do you not see the cross in this passage? I mean, you want to talk about the deathly hollows. We have the three parties that are going to kill Jesus named right here. And before that, we've got the guy that's going to behead John. We've got the lineup that's going to confront this coming king and kill him. And so, friends, the baptism of John is not what we practice. That has become obsolete by the cross. We are baptized into Jesus. And this forgiveness of sin is the flow of the water and the blood which comes out of his dead body when he is poked, skewered by that Roman soldier. And so now, friends, we are baptized into Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit all because as Lauren was alluding to, this Prince of Peace came to bring peace with God through his death, offering now forgiveness of sins to all who would repent and turn. Jesus is going to be the judge of everybody when he returns. But he came first to be our Savior and our Lord. And we can prepare for that coming by turning in repentance experiencing and receiving the forgiveness of our sins and finding true peace in Christ. Amen.